Beyond the Walls podcast is brought to you by our contributors on Patreon and is a production of Mad Lab Studios. To connect with us, find us on social media. Twitter, at Walls underscore Beyond. Search us on Facebook and Instagram. And you can email us at beyondthewallspodcast at gmail.com. America once stood at a massive crossroads. Gigantic corporations wielding destructive power. An ever-increasing income gap between the top 1% and the rest of the population. Astounding new technologies being developed, revolutionizing lives. Does any of this sound familiar to you? This was America at the turn of the 20th century. In a time that has been labeled the Gilded Era of America, you will find one of the most profoundly impactful times in our history. There is so much that happens over the six decades after the American Civil War that speaks to us today, from the explosive rise of industrialism to the social turmoil that the young nation faced in the ashes of one of the bloodiest conflicts in our nation's history. We will dive into the stories behind legendary names like Rockefeller, Carnegie, and Vanderbilt, and how the clash between progress and poverty changed the face of our nation. We'll also look at how the invention and introduction of things like the tools of electricity and cars dramatically altered daily life. We will walk through one of the most glorious periods of American history. As we journey, we will clarify legends, we will bust myths, And we will come out on the other side with a clearer image of our country in this period between two of the largest conflicts the world has ever seen. This will be an illuminating and stunning look at our nation as it undergoes monumental change in this series, The Gilding of America, beginning now from Beyond the Wall. From the ashes of the American Civil War sprung an economic powerhouse. The factories built by the Union to defeat the Confederacies were not shut down at the war's end. Now that the fighting was done, these factories were converted to peacetime purposes. Although industry had existed prior to the war, agriculture had represented the most significant portion of the American economy. After the war, beginning with the railroads, small businesses grew larger and larger. By the century's end, The nation's economy was dominated by a few very powerful individuals. In 1850, most Americans worked for themselves. By 1900, most Americans worked for an employer. The growth was astounding. From the end of the Reconstruction in 1877 to the disastrous Panic of 1893, the American economy nearly doubled in size. New technologies and new ways of organizing business led a few individuals to the top. Those who could not provide the best product at the cheapest price were simply driven into bankruptcy or were bought up by the hungry, successful industrialists. 
Welcome to the first episode, official episode of the 2019 year. I won't spend a whole lot of time up front because I did release a 2019 preview episode that explained all of the changes in a little bit greater detail uh, than what I'm going to hear in regards to Beyond the Walls podcast. But just to kind of a passing glance at it, welcome to the first show of 12 shows this year from Beyond the Walls. So that's right. If you do math and you divide and you carry the one and, and you calculate and move the decimals and all that stuff, basically what it boils down to is that we are going to one episode a month here at Beyond the Walls and it will be released on the third weekend of each month. Again, if you have not heard the preview episode and would like uh, an explanation for the reasoning for that, you're more than welcome to go back and check out the 2019 preview episode that was released at the end of December. Before we dive right into the episode here, I do want to take just a moment, throw in a little side note here. Um, through the holidays, I really was was down with a pretty nasty sinus infection, and, and I'll go ahead and speak on behalf of my wife here, and I will say that, yeah, I was suffering from the man flu, okay? That's, that's what I had, and although I was able to put out the preview episode at the end of last year, I really didn't get to finish the year the way I wanted to with Beyond the Walls, and, and it was mainly and in large part due to the sinus infection and just a where I have an accent that already lends itself to somewhat of a nasal sound, uh, it was even worse. And you can probably even still hear remnants of that because I still have a little bit of congestion going on, although I'm trying to do the best that I can here. I wanted to go ahead and get in the studio and do some recording because, to be quite honest with you, today it's kind of felt like that's trying to recirculate back through. So I just wanted to apologize up front for a little bit of the congestion sound going on there. Maybe there's not so much of an enunciation and and, and gaps and, and closing off of sentences and words properly. I just wanted to get that out of the way up front. We're going to be looking at the Gilding of America and basically, we'll get to the definition of gilding and what that phrase means here in just a little bit. But the Gilded Age of America basically starts right after the Civil War, not too long after the Civil War is done. It, 1865 through around 1900, that's a little bit more liberal and a little bit more generous with the dates than what you may read if you look it up online or if you read a book about the Gilded Age of America. They, they may narrow it down just a little bit more, but for the purposes of what I'm wanting to do with this series, this is the time frame that we're looking at from 1865 to 1900 in the United States. With this episode, really, it's going to be more than an introduction. It's going to be more than a preview because I'm going to be looking in some detail at all the events and the things that, that are taking place in this time period. But I'm not going to be going completely in detail because this one, while it's not an over, a series overview, it will serve as kind of an aerial tour of what we're going to be looking at through this series, The Gilding of America. So we will. I will touch on items, I will touch on events, I will touch on people, happenings, locations, and I will go beyond, I will go a little bit below the surface level, but we're not going to go too deep right now in this episode, because like I said, it's somewhere in between a preview, introduction, and a full-blown episode. So if I talk about something, and you don't think that I've gone into a whole lot of detail on that, Hold off on the emails just for now 
because we will be getting back to it in a later episode. There was a lot of change that was taking place. And even, you know, even today, over 200 and some years later, we are still a relatively, we're we're a very young nation. And at this point, we're extremely young because we're less than 100 years into being the United States of America. But yet we're coming out of a four-year period, which is one of the bloodiest time periods in our nation's history, which we ended up losing a, a large, large number of, of people during this time period. And it's, it's made even worse. It's, it's, it's amplified even more just because it's us killing us, basically. Uh, it's not a war that, although other nations kind of had influence and had a little bit of a, a third-party type feel to it in, in the, the conflict itself, the American Civil War was just that. It was North versus South. It was family against family, brother against brother. It was nation, um, the fighting itself. And that in and of itself is a tragedy. But then when you look at the damage, um, some of it irrevocable, that was done not only during this conflict but in the lead up to the conflict, we're going to find that the healing process here in this gilded era or this time of, of healing and restoration and, and putting things back together and reconstructing a nation, there was a lot more damage done during this time period than what was necessary as well. So you've got a nation that was leading into this conflict, a very broken, a very separated, a very divided nation. And then you had just an all-out, you know, war that that headed this thing. And then on the on the downside of it, as we're coming out of it, we're going to see a lot of progress made. But there's also there there's also a lot of pain in this progress. And we're going to unpack the details of those because an already divided nation was now unified, at least on paper, at least legally, and through a political sense, we were one. But we were far from united at this point. Uh, So much so that in his second inaugural address, Abraham Lincoln even acknowledged this when he said, quote, bind up the nation's wounds to care for him who has bore the battle for his widow and the orphan, end quote. I think it's worth noting that as we're referring in this series to the Gilded Age of America or the Gilding of America, it wasn't known as this during that time frame. And it was sometime into the 20th century that historians really got on board with this, you know, the Gilding or the Gilded Age of America. And it's actually taken from a lesser known Mark Twain novel uh, that, that he actually was a co-author in. So that's an interesting side note that the Gilded Age of America, which all historians now refer to it as that, actually, as many things with history, there was it wasn't known as that during the time period. And it came from a very, very interesting source, uh, that, that actual label. And what we saw is we saw explosive industrial growth during this time period. I mean, and this is one of those areas that I'm going to touch on real quickly and, and we'll talk about a couple times. But as the episodes goes on, as they go on, we will continue to unpack this. But you're looking at a country that before the Civil War, before we went into this, 
pretty much everyone worked for themselves and you worked for your own existence and we were a farming nation uh we were we were not really known as industrial at all and we weren't even on the world radar for the as an industrial superpower and then you go through the civil war where the majority of the industry began to spring forth because of the war itself and then we come out of this and in this 35 year ish period all of a sudden what you find is this nation that is now the industrial superpower of the world so within a 50 year or so span which is a short, short, short amount of time when when you're looking at things from a historical perspective and from a historical standpoint, you're looking at 50 years that a nation went from basically rags to riches from an industrialization standpoint. Uh, you also, with this, again, this is a very good thing because it led to a lot of prosperity, but there's that other side to every coin. So with the explosion in the industrial growth, you also had separation of economic classes. And this is, you know, we're, we're going to talk about the robber barons as they were known and are known to history because you have names like Morgan. You have names like Vanderbilt, Carnegie, Rockefeller, which were the super rich. You had the, the, the one percenters here and there was a huge gap in between them and the rest of the population. Now, to some, these 1%, these Carnegies, these Morgans, these Vanderbilts, these Rockefellers, to some, they were the captains of industry, and they were the forerunners, and they, they paved the way, and they were, they were just these, you know, if we had a Mount Rushmore of industry, those are the four names that are going to be on there. But to the majority of the others... To the majority of the rest of the nation, they were the greedy 1% who basically used everything and used everyone to get more for themselves. So in order to paint the proper picture, in order to give the proper perspective here, and if I could use any words, any more words that start with P and try not to p p p into the microphone, I'm going to impress myself. Let's take a look at what the beginning of this, what did America look like at the beginning of this Gilded Age? What did America look like at the end of the Civil War in 1865? After a four-year conflict, the young nation of America had withstood its greatest test, a test that, at least in the North, was being celebrated, yet no one as celebratory as they were, could imagine the damage that had been done. The reality of both human and material destruction was undeniable amidst the celebration. So let's take just a moment here and let's look at some of the damage that, kind of the rubble that was left at the end of the Civil War. We talked about earlier, just a few moments ago, about how, how high the casualty rate was. The casualty rate for the Civil War was between 625,000 and 750,000 lives. Now, you look at that and you're thinking, oh, okay, well, maybe that's not too bad because, again, when, whenever we look at history, we tend to look at it through the lens of our modern-day perspective. Like we, I, I think we really struggle with looking at history in its context, in the culture, and what numbers, what events, what th 
things that transpired, what it meant during that time period, because it's natural for us to look at things just through the lens of our modern day society. And if we look at it, if you take that 625,000 to 750,000 lives and convert it into a modern day ratio, you're looking at 7 million people. Now, 7 million people from, from the same nation was the casualty rate during the American Civil War. Statistics like those casualty numbers included one out of every four Southern men of military age were killed. Now, take a minute. Let's not gloss over that fact right there. One out of every four Southern men were killed. Not one out of every four soldiers not one out of every four units or battalions or, or, or anything like that. One out of four of a particular demographic, of an age group, of half of a nation died in this conflict. And beyond the loss of human life, then you have the economic damage and, and, and that type of casualty rate. Because you had cities in the south like Atlanta, Georgia, Charleston, South Carolina, and Richmond, Virginia, who, just to name a few, but every one of them were just completely destroyed in 1865. So you're looking at three major, major cities within half of your nation, just completely and totally in rubble and have to be rebuilt. 40% of the livestock in the South was dead. 40% plus uh, of the farm tools had been destroyed the farm tools because what we don't realize is so many of these things were used as weapons yeah they had their you know they had their rifles they had their instruments and they they had their instruments of war they had everything that was military issued and all that but through such a prolonged conflict those things suffered damage also they um, they were destroyed as well, and you just took what you could to fight with, and some of these things that you could fight with were farm tools. There was also another factor here, and as just about all of us, hopefully all of us that's listening to this podcast is absolutely revolted by the practice of slavery, we have to understand, again, we're not viewing history through our lens of modern day, if we take it back to 1865 in the 1840s, 1850s, 1860s, slavery was just something that was normal. In, in no way am I saying or condoning that it was right, but it was just a part of life back then. And you, especially in the South, they built livelihoods. They built part of the nation upon the industry of slavery, on the fact of People, certain people, not all people, certain people were property. That's just what it was built on. And now, all of a sudden, slavery's abolished. That's over. It just, just to give you a little bit, and I don't even know if, if I can do this justice. In 1865, with the freeing of roughly 4 million slaves... You had an industry of two billion, billion with a B, two billion dollars worth of property, because that's what they were considered then. Two billion dollars of property, all of a sudden just lost, that was set free. So you have an economy, 
You have cities that's laying in ruin. You have crops, which are laying in ruin, that, that generated your income. You have tools to work those crops laying in ruin. And now you have the pieces of property, the equipment you used, which was human beings, as repulsive as that is. You had human beings that were... Oh, and, and and I don't know if I can air quote this powerfully and, and more emphatically enough as uh, human beings as property and your equipment to work. But now all of a sudden, all of that's gone. Your economy is going to take a hit. And millions of both blacks and whites found themselves homeless, starving, and sick in 1865. In the aftermath of the Civil War, one of the greatest challenges the nation faced was the reconstructing not only of the southern states, like I just detailed the numbers of, but also reconstruct northern states as well that suffered damage, but also trying to form one united union out of these two entities that had literally just finished killing each other. Beyond the human, material, social, political, and economic effects, you also had things like the unforeseen issues and the consequences that all wars leave in its aftermath. And the Civil War was not exempt from this. It was no different from all other wars. Again, going back just to the abolition of slavery, you ended an institution that your nation was basically founded on. And it had been founded on it and built on it and developed for over 250 years. Now, again, let me throw out this number. Four million people who were once considered property. In in a moment, with the signing of a paper, were now free. And as glorious as that is, and as much as that needed to be celebrated... One of the things that may not have been on their radar is exactly, hey, if we go to war and part of our motivation for going to war, and let's not kid ourselves, the entirety of the Civil War was not because the North was opposed to slavery and the South wanted to maintain it. That was only a minor part. But I don't know if there was a whole lot of people going into it going, okay, if we're victorious in this thing and there, you know, the Emancipation Proclamation does come about and the the, the, the horrible, uh, heinous industry of slavery is ended, we need to make sure that we've got a plan for all of this stuff to come together afterwards. I don't, I don't know if that was on their radar at that point. And even if it was on their radar, I don't know if it was more than just a passing, like very passing blip on that radar at that point. In 1865, we also need to look at the, the the ripple effect. And we, you know, if you're a listener of Beyond the Walls from a long time ago, then you understand that we like to liken history to a pebble hitting a pond and then the ripple ripple effects going out from that. I believe that that pebble hitting the pond is the genesis of man and the purpose behind these episodes is not to come anywhere close to trying to answer that question. So I'm just going to say that the pebble hitting the pond is the genesis of man. And then there are millions upon millions of ripple effects in that pond that go out from that one point of impact right there, that genesis of man. And I don't know if any, but if there are some, 
that are not a ripple effect from that. They are very, very few and far between. So I believe that everything in history has a domino that's at least one domino that's had to fall before it and numerous dominoes that have taken place after it. So what else was taking place in 1865? What other landscape changes are we seeing in America at this point? Well, to say that there was a population boom may be a little bit of an understatement. And here's why. Here's some of the numbers. In 1860, the population was an estimated 31 million people. By the year 1900, that number had increased 142% to 76 million people. In, to give you a little bit of perspective on that, the nation's powerhouse at the time, Great Britain, only grew by 44% during that time period, or 10 million people. And you see that there is a growth of 45 million people here in North America during that 40-year span. Now, along with... One of the things that happens naturally whenever you have a population boom is, yes, you do have people reproducing and you do have some addition happening that way, but there was a mass flood and a huge flow of immigrants happening. So immigration surged, began to surge in, in 1865. And as we look at the decades that preceded, you know, in 1860s, you had 2.1 million immigrants. In the 1870s, that number went to 2.7. And in the 1880s, that number almost doubled by going to 5.2 million. One of the great benefits of this mass immigration movement was that we had an entire West that had yet to be settled for the most part at this time. So that's where they were focused at. That's where the government was kind of filtering them into. And, and, and we'll get into the, um, the conquering or the habitation of the Western lands as we go along with this series. But right now, that's one of the main contributing factors of Western expansion was the, the amount of immigrants that we had coming into America. Now, mass immigration then, as it is now, was met with some pretty intense resistance to the point that laws were being passed uh, for immigration screening to take place. And, and actually, one of the most notable stations in all of American history for the screening of immigrants coming into our nation is Ellis Island in New York. And that is a result of this immigration surge during the Gilded Age of America, and that opened in 1892. Also, in 1865, the number of industrial plants had almost tripled. In 1860, there was 144,000 industrial plants. Most of those were brought about and built because of the Civil War. Not all, but most of them. By 1900, 35 years after the Civil War had ended, that number had gone up to 510,000. All right, so let's move on from the numbers standpoint that we just looked at here, although those are some pretty staggering numbers from in, in regard to population growth, economy growth, uh, things of that nature. But let's look at America. What in 1865 did America look like in, in regards to foreign relations? Well, really not a whole lot. There was one area of concentration back then, and as far as foreign relations were concerned, and, and that was pretty much Great Britain. 
that's all that the people really thought about for the most part simply because in, especially in the north there was a lot of uh, a lot of tension a lot of anxiety um, a, a lot of ill feeling towards great britain because great britain played a pretty integral part and supported the america south during the civil war which again was another one of those details that we'll unpack in in a further in a in a later episode but all, there was this little bit of an undercurrent that was taking place because what you had is you had people like Great Britain and France and Germany and these, these people over there on the European continent on that side of the pond, so to speak, is they began to kind of spread out and start claiming land uh, in the Middle East. And, you know, there were um, some people here as they were spreading and becoming more powerful and more powerful and more powerful. You had some, some people that, like I said, this undercurrent that started chirping a little bit into the ears of, of the leaders talking about, Hey, we need to maybe let's look at bolstering and really developing and creating a more substantial naval force in order to kind of keep these nations in check because they're over there. Um, and, and they're really just kind of doing whatever they want to while we're over here trying to get our footing and, and really, you know, establish ourselves here after this American Civil War that we just went through. We need to have a little bit more of a presence on the world stage. And one of the ways to do that is develop a, a strong navy. And it was really through this line of thought and through these discussions back and forth and through the bolstering of the Navy that, that led to the war with Spain in 1898. Um, and a result of that war, uh, right as the Gilded Age was coming to an end, that, that gave us the acquisition of Cuba. And uh, you know we obtained Puerto Rico and the Philippines through this. And this, this war and these acquisitions and us obtaining these lands is actually what led us to the building of the Panama Canal, which comes a little bit later down the line. Um, an, another area that beyond numbers and in dealing with expansion and land grabbing and, and acquiring different places, we also started seeing the conflict with the Native Americans begin to enter a new phase and really kind of the last phase um, in, in the conflicts that we had with them. Uh, from the like the Mississippi River area on west, and, and we will definitely, definitely be giving you a lot of detail and a lot of story and a lot of narrative about how that took place. Um, but you know, with the westward expansion, like I said, the immigrants were playing a big part in this. There was um, there was a lot of governmental land that was just deeded over to people, and there are really kind of four causes that really pushed westward expansion there's there's four things that really just kind of got behind that thing and, and and pushed it along number one of that was farming um, there, there was a, a greater need populations increasing so you have more need for farming number two was mining uh, the coal you know you needed more natural resources you needed more energy to burn and and you know oil wasn't really a big player on the on the scene right at this point but coal mining was so you had that fueling the expansion you also had ranching as they were going out through there more land was being grabbed up more farming was taking place more people started developing and, and cultivating these ranches and making their living that way and then finally railroads uh, you know that became a big big player uh, in 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 connecting the east and west coast during this time and that that became a big big cause in westward expansion and 
kind of bringing these conflicts with the with the Native Americans to a head during this period as well. Moving out of the West, there was still this big problem, this big lingering problem of the South. And not so much that there was, I mean, there was pockets of resistance still, and you still had your elements of, of people who were very loyal to the Southern way of life and the Southern causes in the Civil War. But it was beyond that. It, it goes to rebuilding the South. I mean, you know, we talked about the numbers to that a little bit earlier. What are you going to do with that? You've got major cities lying in rubble. You've got an institution that had been 250 years in the making that served as a foundation for this part of the country. What's what's going on there? And then one thing we didn't talk about, that the railroad system throughout the South was just absolutely in disarray because the North was disabling the South throughout the, the entirety of the Civil War by destroying their railways. And one other thing that we kind of alluded to at the beginning, you've got to find a way to feed all of these displaced people. You've got people um, who are displaced out of their homes, out of their cities, and then you have these freedmen. You have these people who have never known freedom in their lives, and now all of a sudden they're free, and, and you, you've got these new consequences. You've got these new problems that are serving as a consequence of winning a war that, like I stated a little bit ago, I don't know if that was really... Well, I, I can pretty much say it wasn't on their radar going into it of how to deal with it because the majority of the discussion for the the period of the gilded age and even beyond that was how do how do we how do we handle this how is all of this going to play out what do we do with this okay we won the war that's great but but now we got to deal with this and then you deal with that and okay hey now we got to deal with this and then there would you know it, there would be times that there would be two and three of them pop up at the same time so there's a lot of issues that are happening now in the rebuilding of the South. So you've got industrialization happening at an at a, at a unbelievably rapid rate in the North, and you've got cities booming, and you've got population increasing, and you've got immigration flocking in. You know, you've got people flocking in. You've got budgets that are just booming, and then all of a sudden you factor that into westward expansion, and hey, we've got a lot of land. We've got a lot of people. We need to get them out there, and now we're having conflicts again with the Native Americans through this, and oh, hey, by the way, while you're on that, look down south too, because not only do you have, you know, all of this stuff to rebuild, but you've got a social problem happening down there because there is a ton of social inequality happening and that's kind of what the next area I want to look at is what in 1865 what major changes were happening socially as far as class structure after the American Civil War it's in this social area where things really got kind of sticky as difficult as all of the other things I just went through, the industrialization, the urbanization happening, uh, all of your immigration, western expansion, rebuilding the south, in my opinion, one of the most challenging things that the Union faced is this social aspect of the rebuilding process. Because again, you've got upwards of around 4 million people now who were once property that are no longer slaves. Um, they're free. But what did freedom mean? As a government, what does freedom mean to you, to these people? Are they citizens? Are you going to grant them citizenship? You, or are they just going to be considered free people um, who have, you know, are just kind of aliens here with no rights? 
or, or if they are citizens, what level of rights do they have? Uh, do they have the, the right to vote? Do Can they serve in office? Can they own land? Can they do all of these different things? You know, one of the more difficult things um, for me is just kind of the, the waffling that's taken place because this wasn't something that, that came to a quick resolution. It was well into the next century before anything was truly settled um, on, on this issue as to what level of freedom that they were going to have. And, and to throw another area that was waffled back and forth for decades after this was the rights of women. So, I mean, there was a lot of social inequality going on in this. There was, you know, not only an income gap, but one of the things that was taking place kind of towards the end of the Gilded Age, which the next transitional period uh, happens around 1900, uh, and that's known as the Progressive Era. But one of the things that we see in the Gilded Age is the middle class beginning to develop you know we had that that wide range you had basically the filthy rich and then the dirt poor uh, but towards the end of the gilded age you start seeing the middle class start to develop and, and one of the things that happens with the middle class is you begin to start having more women in careers more career-minded women which means that they were having fewer children and they were going to college and and you had this kind of this in-between income level and what that does is that begins to spark the revolution for women's rights, and rightfully so. But again, these are two of the bigger things, to me at least. These are two of the biggest things to come out of it. And, and it's, again, the domino thing. I don't know if either of these would have come about had not the, the rest of it been taking place at the same time. But these are two ma major issues that have to be addressed here during this time and for, like I said, decades to come because they waffled back and forth. Why gilded? Why is it labeled the gilded? I know that we went through a little bit of the history to begin with, with the, the title of the book, you know, um, from Mark Twain back in the, the gilded age itself. But why gilded? Well, again, after the gilded age was done, after the turn of the 20th century, a couple decades into that, the historians of the time really began to look at it and say, you know, that's that's exactly what that was. To gild something, if, if you have a gilded piece of jewelry, then what you have is you have metal underneath and then just a thin layer of gold or precious metal laid over top of it. And that kind of summarized what was taking place during this 1865 to 1900 period. And, and even some would say that we are in the Gilded Age 2.0. And if I have any Office fans out there that's listening to me, you just saw Ryan with the Dunder Mifflin Infinity website 2.0. And you know exactly what hand motions I just made with my hands right there. But, but regardless, let's, let's look at the Gilded. Let's look at some of the golden achievements Let's look at this term gilded. Uh, it means that there was a lot of technology, a lot of industry, wealth. There was advancement. This was the golden coating on it. There was a lot of prosperity. And we look back on it thinking, man, that was a booming time in our nation. And it was. But it wasn't all golden. It wasn't all precious. It wasn't all what it looks like from the exterior. Because underneath, you had greed. You had corruption, you had racial inequality, you had economic and social inequalities, you had political corruption, and so on and so forth. All of this stuff was 
was the the underlying things that were coded that were that were gilded over with all of these good things now again we can't make light of the good things some of the golden achievements of this time period i mean and they're they're very significant and you're going to recognize probably all of these on some level and this is just some of the major ones this isn't an exhaustive list uh, you had the Atlantic Cable that connected London and New York via telegraph in 1866. Three years later, you had the Transcontinental Railroad completed. Uh, in 1883, you had the building of the Brooklyn Bridge, and you know the Statue of Liberty was assembled in 1886. And there were national celebrations all over the place as these achievements were happening. So you had a sense of nationalism and pride and unity that was happening. And, and with each of these things, there would be a, 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 a togetherness that would happen and be taking place and be building. And then you would have things like the work stoppages of, of the railroad work stoppages of 1877 and 1894. Those strikes that would threaten this image because as soon as this golden image would be rising, then, then you would have something that would be taking place that would kind of come along and take the feet you know kind of pull the rug out from under it uh and that's just part of you know what what i consider to be the underlying dark consequences of industrialization you know and those things are are, are things like power of big business and the growing uh, number of poverty of the workers of this big business even though they're working they're still living in poverty and you had frequent frequent episodes of labor and capital violence. Now, as this series goes on, to, to wrap up this first overview episode here in the business world, this 10,000-foot view episode that I've just put out here on the Gilded Age, I want to give you a few concepts that we're going to be looking at, and I want you to be looking and listening for as we go along in this series, episode by episode. But one of the concepts was individualism. One of the biggest things that marked the Gilded Age of America is the sense of individualism that went with it. You had extremes, like we had mentioned a little bit before. You had the, the filthy rich or the dirt poor. Uh, you had you know, the people that were living in lavishness or the people who were living just in absolute poverty. And you would have all of these different types of situations that were, that were polar opposites, extremes of one another. You would have this concept of, of conflict and ideals from freedom. What is freedom? What is equality? What is justice and et cetera? Because you would have these debates going on in our government and amongst our leaders of what is, exactly is the definition of these words and how are we going to put them into practice? And to build off that, you had a conflict of this conception of the role of the state versus the role of the federal government. Because you would have people who would want less government, but then they would want government to step in on behalf of them, uh, whether it be a union, whether it be workers, or against big business, or against railroad, or something like that. So you had this conflict of the role of the state versus the role of the federal government. You also had causes. And yes, I said causes as in the plural form of the word because you, again, you always have these domino effects like I've talked about a couple times already. Dominoes will always knock over other dominoes and typically a domino doesn't get knocked over unless there's something that's happened before it. You also have the concept of surprises. There was just things that were happening that no one expected. And isn't that kind of the 
the gist of life? I mean, isn't that really what we uh, have going on in our lives of it doesn't always go as we've mapped it out? You've got conflict as well. Uh, History is said to be the study of conflicts of all types beyond actual wars and those types of conflicts. But you have conflicting ideals. You have conflicting cultures. You have conflicting belief systems. And all of these were coming to play. You have the concept of influences. Not only the influences of the big names, the robber barons, the politicians, the ones that are littered throughout our history books, but more importantly than those, than the nameless and faceless people who have fought for years, decades even, for equality, gone to battle for an idea, had their reputation ruined among certain crowds because they believed in something. People like this are all throughout world history, especially American history, and we may never know the names, we may never see the faces, but understand that we would never be the nation that that we are today. I would never be here speaking into this microphone today if it were not for those people who, at least in my opinion, are the far more important role players in history that, that, that allow me to stand here today that, that, to speak into this microphone, that allow you to have the technology in your hand to listen to this podcast, uh, to be able to talk about these things freely. It's the people who have risked their lives, given their lives, and sacrificed so much more than what we could ever possibly imagine. But we'll never know their names. We'll never see their faces. But they're the ones who have helped shape America the most, in my opinion. Then you look at crisis, the concept of crisis. Crisis basically equals the opportunity for change. I mean, to be honest with you, how many of you actually were prepared for the technology that we live in today? Another, I think probably the greatest example is, you know, we're the age of terrorism. None of us, none of us were prepared for the age of terrorism. But then 9-11 happened. And it was, whether we were prepared for it or not, we were in it. So crisis helps to shape the culture that's around us, and it's no different in the Gilded Age. And then you come to the concept of choices. You know, one of the things that we're guilty of, I'm guilty of it myself, is that we look back on history and we seem to think that maybe something was inevitable, you know, that it was just going to happen. I want to propose to you quite the opposite of that, that there's nothing in history that's inevitable. There's not some cosmic mystical force of inevitability out there that's just making things happen regardless of choice. If you take choice, if you take morals, if you take ethics, if you take character out of history, then you just, it's, history is is about the choices, the way we respond to things, the way that we react to situations, the, the way that we approach different things. It's these choices, it's these morals, it's these ethics and this character that drives us as a nation, that shapes us. The only thing that that's inevitable is things that we look back on that seem to be inevitable at the time. But they weren't. So I want us to make sure that we're, we're rolling this series through that lens. And then relevance. We're going to be looking at the concept of relevance because I love talking about history. I love studying history. I love reading about history. But the thing about it is, is why would you want to listen to something? Why would I want to talk about something or or read something or study something if there is not some form of relevance to us today? So we'll tie all of that together, all of those concepts 
I want you to have on your radar, so to speak, as we go through this series, The Gilding of America. Thank you for listening to this episode of Beyond the Walls podcast. Again, connect with us on Twitter at walls underscore beyond. Search us on Facebook and Instagram at Beyond the Walls podcast. And email us at beyondthewallspodcast at gmail.com. We'll see you again next month. Beyond the Walls.